Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 46, The Raven Versus the Nightingale. The opening melody is Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song, Come Rest in This Bosom. Now, my name is George Bartley. Thank you for downloading this podcast, and please consider subscribing if you've not already, and writing a review. This episode is the second and final episode about John Keats, and later I'm going to zero in on what is frequently considered Keats' masterpiece, Ode to a Nightingale. First, I have two announcements to make as a result of the last episode regarding Mr. Keats. Number one, according to my stats, this podcast has been online for four months and just reached 1,000 downloads. Thank you very, very much for listening. You have no idea how hard I work on this podcast. Sometimes it doesn't sound like it, but I'm committed to improving the sound quality, the content, and my accent. I do apologize for the faux British accent I have been using. I've been taking lessons and getting all kinds of DVDs of BBC shows from the library. You probably know, number two, you probably know, based on previous episodes, uh, that one of my favorite things to do is look at my stats and try to imagine what uh, my listeners might be uh, thinking. Okay, I know, I need a life. At, At the risk of sounding like a broken record that repeats itself over and over, the only information I get from my Buzzsprout stats are the number of downloads and the city or the area of the download. Nothing creepy like any private information where a person can be identified. And I like it much better that way. Uh, during the last episode, I had some downloads from Camden Town in England. I looked that area up on Wikipedia and was delighted to see that Camden Town or Camden, apparently the area is also called Camden, is Keats country. Camden is the location of what was once the home of John Keats. The author lived there with his friend Charles Brown from December 1818 to September 1820, perhaps the most productive period of Keats' life. Ode to a Nightingale was written under a plum tree in the garden. Uh, While he was living in the house, Keats fell in love with and became engaged to Fanny Braun, that's B-R-A-W-N-E, who lived with her family in the adjacent house. By the way, the cover art for this episode is a painting of Fanny Braun. Later in this episode, I will talk with Mr. Keats, the ghost of Mr. Keats, about his consumption and uh, being advised to move to Italy for a warmer climate. The British Museum is also located in this area, so I like to imagine maybe someone affiliated with the Keats House or British Museum listening to the podcast, or maybe just someone who's just plain interested. By the way, in 1818, the young Edgar Allan Poe was attending the Manor House School run by the Reverend John Bransby in Stoke Newington, London. The Reverend Bransby had quite a reputation as a classical scholar, and there is little doubt that classes also taught Latin and Greek. Stoke Newington at the time would have been easily within walking distance from the British Museum for Poe.
Did anyone mention Stoke Newington and the Reverend Bransbeck? Well, greetings, Mr. Keats and uh, Mr. Poe. Greetings, Mr. Bartlett. Gentlemen, I, I want to discuss your wonderful poem about a nightingale. Mr. Bartley, you mean a raven. No, Mr. Poe, I'm not going to make this into a, a raven versus the nightingale episode. I intend to talk to Mr. Keats regarding a poem that many scholars believe is his greatest, Ode to a Nightingale. And Mr. Poe, you know that Celebrate Poe will spend a great deal of time analyzing your poem, The Raven, in the future. And for your information... Originally, I thought it might be interesting to do kind of a comparison of Mr. Keats' Ode to a Nightingale with Mr. Poe's Raven, but I came to realize uh, that might seem like a competition that really wasn't fair to either poem or poet. Now, Mr. Keats, could you tell us what the Ode to a Nightingale is about, possibly analyzing your words stanza by stanza? Yes, I wrote the poem about the beautiful song of a nightingale while emphasizing the bird's beautiful but melancholy singing. In the poem, I have become intoxicated by the wonderful song as though I had drunk numbing hemlock or opium. I am therefore forgetting everything as though I am going to Lethe, the river of forgetfulness in Greek mythology. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains. One minute passed, and lethe words had sunk. Tis not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, light-winged dryad of the trees in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless singest of summer in full-throated ease. Now I use more of what one might refer to as the language of intoxication, desiring to drink some wine that has grown in the earth and therefore tasting of flowers. One might say that I desire to drink to forget, just as hearing the nightingale causes me to forget about the troubles of this world. Oh, for a drought of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provincial song and sunbirth mirth. Oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrine, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen and with thee fade away into the forest dim. Now, in the third stanza, I think more about forgetting the realities about me, the passing of years, growing older, and finally death, and that all beauty must fade. Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou among the leaves hast never known. The weariness, the fever, and the fret, here where men sit and hear each other groan where palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, 
where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is but to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. But with the next stanza, I admit that I must abandon Bacchus and the pleasures of wine, and now use my feeble brain to be creative in difficult situations. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charited by Bacchus and his pods, but on the viewless wings of poesy. Though the dull brain perplexes and retards already with thee, tender is the night. And haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her starry fays. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown. Through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways. In the next stanza I wrote that I know I am now following the nightingale, and I invite the reader to share in the sensual world around me. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet, nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet wherewith the seasonable month endows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn, and the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child. The coming musk rose, full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer eaves. Now, in this stanza, I ask the reader to join me in experiencing the song of the nightingale, that it would be a good thing to die accompanied by the song of the bird, that I had been half in love with death. And in this poem, I use the word sods to mean earth. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many a mused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. In the next verse, I wrote that the immortal bird, the nightingale, was not made to die, and I make a reference to Ruth of the Old Testament. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird. No hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the same self, same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth. When sick for home, she stood in tears among the alien corn, the same that oft times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Now the final stanza allows one to enter a paradise of visions and dreams. Forlorn the very world is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. 
Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well, as, as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plenty of anthem fades, past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? Thank you, Mr. Keats. You certainly use a great deal of imagery. Sensory or sensual pictures that lead us to another world. Numerous people feel that sensual imagery is what I am famous for. Of course, ultimately what a poem is about is up to the reader or listener, the individual's interpretation. Yes, that, that is quite true. And, uh, Mr. Bartley, I would like to address a subject that many scholars have written about, the subject of my earthly sexual orientation. I would like to be clear about the issue. It seems that you earthly people have so many unhealthy obsessions about such topics. Of course, as spirits are ghosts, we don't have to worry about such things, but on earth it seems to be the topic of great concern. Now, the short answer to that question is that I was definitely heterosexual. But saying that is almost like an individual asking, how did Mr. Poe die? And one answering, unknown. Yes, that is the short answer, and yes, it is accurate. But in my case, there are dozens of theories, some far more believable than others, that provide an insight into the dynamics of my life and death. Such insights should be investigated. And I can assure you that Celebrate Poe will examine most of those theories at the appropriate time. However, I need to return to America and have an active literary career first. But returning to the subject of Mr. Keats' sexual orientation, a subject we would probably not be discussing if I had not become a gay icon. Actually, the subject of my sexual orientation deals with a great deal more, such as morals of the day, what was viewed as acceptable, and the romanticism of death, especially if that person died young. Well, I am from the South and do not understand, fully do not understand these things. Uh, what is a gay icon? A famous gay person? Not exactly. A gay icon is a public figure, such as a writer, actor, musician, uh, etc., who is particularly admired by homosexual people, especially for showing spirit, strength, and a disregard of doing things the same way. This is especially true if that person has an intriguing story to tell, improves the world, or leaves an interesting life, such as a Madonna, a Marilyn Monroe, a Princess Diana, or a Sir Ian McKellen. I feel that I had an interesting story to tell, improved the world with my writing, and led an interesting, although all too brief, life. I left this earthly world when I was 25 years of age. 
By the way, I've never run into any source, though there may be some out there that says Poe was gay, so I won't be going down that road. But getting back to Mr. Keats. Mr. Bartley, you do seem to be getting off topic a great deal. Let me point out that during my earthly life, there was no such concept of an individual being proud and gay. If one was known as homosexual, then that person would definitely be prosecuted. I did engage in cross-dressing of a sort, and let me emphasize, of a sort, during the publishing of The Jealousies because I was planning to use the pseudonym Lucy Vaughn Lloyd, but the reason for that was financial. My work was not selling, and women writers sold far, far more titles. It was said that I was a man who could be haunted for two days by the voice and the shape of a woman. And once I had to be treated for syphilis, I contracted from a female prostitute. I certainly worked hard writing, and I feel I made certain accomplishments, but physically I was becoming weaker and weaker. As I have mentioned before, my writing suffered greatly because I began to suffer constant chest pain and hacking coughs. This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would if it were cold and in the icy silence of the tomb, so haunt thy days and chill thy dreaming nights, that thou wouldst wish thine own heart dry of blood, so in my veins red life might stream again, and thou be conscience calmed. See, here it is, I hold it towards you. At first I did not know why I was suffering. All I knew was that I was becoming weaker and weaker. I did manage to write the following words to my dear love Fanny in February of 1820. Indeed, I will not deceive you with respect to my health. This is the fact as far as I know. I have been confined three weeks and am not yet well. Oh, this proves that there is something wrong about me which my constitution will either conquer or give way to. Oh, oh you know our situation. What hope is there? My, my very health will not suffer me to make any great exception. I am recommended not even to read poetry, much less to write it. I wish I had even a little hope. On August the 14th, I wrote, My chest is in so nervous a state that anything extra such as speaking to an unaccustomed person or writing a note half suffocates me. I have more to say, but must desist, for every line I write increases the tightness of my chest. Later that month, I managed to write, I am sickened at the brute world which you are smiling with. I see nothing but thorns for the future. I see no prospect of any rest. I wish you could infuse a little confidence in human nature into my heart. I cannot muster any. Oh, the world is too brutal for me. Oh, I am glad there is a, such a thing as the grave. Oh, I am sure I shall never have any rest until I get there. I was beginning to feel weaker and weaker, and two of my doctors advised me to go to Italy. I must interject here that going to the warmer clime of Italy was frequently considered a last resort for those with consumption. 
I certainly did not have sufficient financial resources, but Mr. John Taylor, who had published my last volume, loaned me the money for the trip to Italy. I had written an unpublished volume and intended for its sale to serve as security for the loan. The voyage from London, England to Naples, Italy required almost a month. Then we had to remain on board in quarantine before we could leave the ship. An unbelievably long time for a person who feels as if he is dying. But then the days were well into November and any warm climate in Italy had passed. From there I traveled to Rome, where I rented an apartment overlooking the Spanish steppes, and was cared for by my painter friend, Mr. Joseph Severin. My doctor, James Clark, began to bleed me. He put me on an extremely small diet that he felt would make me well. All it did was starve me and cause me to become so weak I could not move. My condition continued to worsen a great deal. Mr. Severn wrote, He remains quiet and submissive under his heavy fate. For three weeks I have never left him. I have nothing to break this dreadful solitude but letters. Day after day, night after night, here I am by our poor dying friend. My spirits, my intellect, and my health are breaking down. I, I, I can get no one to change with me, no one to relieve me. I'll run away, and even if they did not, uh, Keats would not do without me. Mr. Severn sat by me continuously, and on the morning of January the 28th, apparently to keep himself awake, he drew a sketch of me on which he wrote, a deadly sweat was on him all this night. In one of my few lucid moments, I asked Mr. Severn, Did you ever see anyone die? Well then, I pity you, poor Severn. Now you must be firm, for it will not last long. In my last letter, a note to Charles Armitage Brown, I wrote, "'Tis the most difficult thing in the world to me to write a letter.' My stomach continues so bad that I feel it worse on opening any book, yet I am much better than I was in quarantine. I, I have a habitual feeling of my real life having passed and that I am leading a post posthumous existence. By this time I had given up all wish for recovery. As the time approached, I became more quiet and calm and tried to go to sleep. Then, Severn, lift me up. I am dying. I shall die easy. Don't be frightened. Be firm and thank God it has come. I left this earthly life on Friday, February the 23rd, 1821, at the age of 25. My body was buried in the Protestant cemetery in Rome. I requested that the following words be inscribed on my tombstone. This grave contains all that was mortal of a young English poet who was on his, on his deathbed in the bitterness of his heart at the malicious power of his enemies desired these words to be engraved on his tombstone. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. 
writ in water. In other words, I felt my life was meaningless, as though my life and work were like ripples in the water that quickly disappear and are gone forever. Mr. Keats, your thousands of readers over the years have proved that you are definitely remembered. No, millions of readers over the years. That your life and works definitely had meaning. Now, when Oscar Wilde visited your grave, he knelt and called it the holiest place in Rome. Mr. Wilde later wrote, As I stood beside the mean grave of this divine boy, I thought of him as a priest of beauty slain before his time, and the vision of Guido's Saint Sebastian came before my eyes as I saw him at Genoa a lovely brown boy with crisp, clustering hair and red lips, bound by his evil enemies to a tree, and though pierced by arrows, raising his eyes with divine, impassioned gaze towards the opening heavens. Oscar Wilde also wrote a sonnet about Keats called The Grave of Keats. Rid of the world's injustice and his pain, he rests at last beneath God's veil of blue, Taken from life when life and love were new, the youngest of the martyrs here is lain. Fair as Sebastian, and as early slain, no cypress shades his grave, no funeral you, but gentle violets weeping with the dew weave on his bones an ever-blossoming chain. O proudest heart that broke for misery, O sweetest lips since those of Midalene, O poet-painter of our English land, thy name was writ in water. It shall stand in tears like mine, will keep thy memory green. Now, according to one of the former curators of the Keats Shelley Memorial House, uh, in which Mr. Keats left this earthly life, visitors will frequently ask if Mr. Keats and Mr. Severn were lovers. Of course, the curator would always answer no, and often visitors to the house would be somewhat disappointed. But this is one of those occasions when the myth of a physical relationship points to an ultimate truth, that Keats conceived of a man's power as imaginative ability to embody whatever that person chooses, regardless of sex or sexual orientation. Perhaps this is one reason that the Keats-Shelley Memorial House is one of the attractions to which gay-friendly directories direct readers. On the lighter side, you may have noticed that Mr. Keats' epitaph was rather lengthy, over 50 words. At the other end is what must be the shortest epitaph, the words on the grave of American poet Emily Dickinson in Amherst, Massachusetts, an epitaph of two words that she wrote in her typically concise style. Now, the complete epitaph is simply called back. I believe that John Keats wrote a poem that expresses the spirit of the Romantic poets better than anything I've ever read. The poetry of earth is never dead. When all the birds are faint with the hot sun and hide in cooling trees, a voice will run from hedge to hedge about the new mown mead. 
This belongs to the grasshopper. He takes the lead in summer luxury. He is never done with his delights, for when tired out with fun, he rests at ease beneath some pleasant weed. The poetry of earth is ceasing never. On a lone winter evening, when the frost has wrought a silence, from the stove there shrills the cricket's song, in warmth increasing ever, and seems to one in drowsiness half lost, the grasshoppers among some grassy hills. I think John Keats' greatest contribution to the world, besides his achingly beautiful poetry, is the concept of negative capability. When you first look at the words negative and capability, they don't seem like much together, like they just don't make any sense. But Keats used the words to get across the idea of suspending judgment about something in order to learn more about it, to value complexity and not be worried about quick yes or no answers or easy solutions. Like Poe, Keats was well aware of how an infectious disease could take away the lives of many of those he loved. It even took the writer's life when he was 25. In the same way, poor planning and simple-sounding solutions, and we know what causes the disease, all of this has resulted in over half a million deaths from COVID-19 in the United States alone many of them deaths that just did not have to happen. In the same way, Keats had no choice but to develop a deep respect for life's uncertainties. He was greatly inspired by Shakespeare's treatment of complex issues, what he described as being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any reaching after fact and reason. To admit that there are some things we just don't understand, and to not always insist on convenient, easy answers that might sound appealing in the moment, but really have no validity. Sources for this episode include Albion, The Origins of the uh, English Imagination by Peter Ackroyd, Curiosities of Literature by John Sutherland, Complete Poems and Selected Letters of John Keats by John Keats, John Keats Bloom's Modern Critical Views by Harold Bloom, The Cambridge Companion to Keats by Susan J. Wolfson, Edgar, a. Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by Arthur Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Poe and Place by Philip Edward Phillips, and the book and CD Accents, a manual for actors by Robert Blumenfeld. And check out my podcast website at Celebrate Poe, that's all one word, celebratepoe.buzzsprout, again, that's all one word, dot com, celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Click on the episode you want to learn more about to see its show notes and a transcript. Well, thank you very much for making it this far as we take a deep dive into the life, times, and influences of America's Shakespeare and how he has influenced our world. Join us for the next episode, Can Spring Be Far Behind, as Celebrate Poe 
begins a look at Percy Bysshe Shelley, a fascinating individual. Thank you for listening to Celebrate Poe.